Hello, everyone. Welcome back to News Reel. Here we are in the studio. There's Scott. Hi, Scott. Hi, everybody. And uh, there's Joe. Hi, Joe. What? There's some. Wait, where's Joe? Who's that? Who are you? Did didn't Joe have dark hair? What? I didn't know he was going to. And, and why why does it have that silly grin on its face? I think Joe fell asleep. Let me go see. <laughs> Joe, Joe, wake up. Joe, Joe. Joe. Uh. Uh, I think Joe's... Joe, wake up. Hello. Great. Great. I'm on my own here. Thanks, Joe. He's fast asleep. I can't believe this. <laughs> How long more is that thing going to do that? Um, I th- it goes longer than you would hope it would. <laughs> so Obviously. The, the, hair, the color of Joe's hair has changed. He's turned into a leprechaun, and he's fallen asleep. Well, Joe's not with us this week. Uh, he's here in spirit, as you can see. This is Joe's spirit animal. He's on a little R&R. So, yeah, this week it's me and Scott in the studio and his Joe's spirit animal. Um, we're going to be talking about, let's see, Roe versus Wade in the United States. Uh, probably we're going to be touching on the vaccines, controversial subject, but, you know, they're rolling it out for kids now in the United States, so we have to cover it. We'll also be discussing latest from Ukraine, about Ukraine, and geopolitics surrounding that so the first topic this week though will be yeah abortion it's not like i don't i didn't really want to talk about this but it's in the news everyone else is talking about it at least certainly in the united states um but not only in the united states the, the problem is like european leaders are weighing in on it too you know almost uniform yeah all of them on the same side of this debate, that's that's a, that's how you know you're you're dealing with something extremely polarizing. Um, Trudeau also spoke up about it. Anyway, so angry protests erupting everywhere in the U.S. Um, obviously, it's you know kind of like there's a pattern to it. Cash your mind back to 2020, and you probably see the same geographic distribution of where people are most upset about the U.S. Supreme Court decision last week to overturn Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade um, is, a, is a case that uh, set down the standard, I suppose, for abortion rights in the United States back in 1973. It was decided in the U.S. Supreme Court decision by that name, Roe versus Wade. And it basically required that all states in the U.S. of A. provide minimal abortion facilities or rights, full rights to a woman to have an abortion. And what was shocking about it is that at the time, that was like a bolt out of the blue. Um, Some states indeed allowed it, facilitated it, and had done for some time. But the point was, many didn't, and the point was that it was something that was changing, I suppose, slowly over the course of the 20th century. You know, 
pro progressivism, liberalism, indeed spread its own spread all through the 20th century. And you had this, um, among other things, one phenomenon, of course, in the 1960s that led into this period in the 1970s was the so-called sexual revolution, um, women's liberation movement, uh, the rise of feminism, of course, not just in academia, but, you know, in um, movements and uh, political developments across the board. Okay. But still, this one decision was kind of a bolt out of the blue because it didn't just impact something that w was already happening organically and most importantly democratically at a local level in the United States. It suddenly seemed to require that it become a national issue. Um, and that's part of why it's been such a, a polemic issue in the United States. Um, the fact that it came out of nowhere. Uh, it, you know, it, it always... I've come to understand both sides of the argument a bit better um, in more recent times, but for so long, I'm like, why is this such a hot-button topic in the US of A? What about you? You tell me, Scott. I'm, I'm just a European here. Maybe I shouldn't be weighing in on this, but like growing up, I mean, you heard a lot about it. Yeah. For I mean, and against. I don't, I don't even really... I don't... I'm not sure anyone actually fully understands the, <laughs> the whole thing because it was like, oh, Roe v. Wade, you know, women's rights, this is super important, so on and so forth, except then individual states could override it. So it's like if you lived in state A and they didn't allow abortions, then you cross the border to get an abortion in state B, except then apparently that was limited because then they said, no, you have to be a resident, but there are ways around that. And so it was like, It was always kind of odd to me because – and, and and the big question I have is why now? Because, I mean, I'm reading yesterday and they're saying like, you know, the Department of Homeland Security has come out and said, uh-oh, uh, you know, beware of, you know, people setting things on fire, people rioting uh, from both sides. Uh -huh. So both sides have gone crazy now and you have this this division and, I mean, I guess you could say, well, right, Biden and – Kamala Harris's ratings are like rock bottom, so of course they need something to distract people. And here, let's get everyone fired up, kind of like when Trump was president, right? Mm. You have you know, Black Lives Matter, this and that, and suddenly piles of bricks are appearing everywhere, and you have chaos and division. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's it's like because isn't it true that right now, even with a new ruling, states can still override it, or am I mistaken on that? Um. Roe versus Wade required something of the states. What this latest decision says, it goes back to the states, back to the status quo before. It's up to you how you regulate it, how you legislate, what what exactly you can allow, and then how you monitor and regulate and oversee it. So it's actually a win. It's, it's, it's ironic because it, it's a win for what classical liberalism wanted, you know, our own more democratic local decision-making over key issues, abortion being one of them. Um, that's all it does. But it's been interpreted in a kind of soundbite way, and it's been sh shorthand. It's become a... This has, been a this has been a while coming because, you know, that people suspected that this was going to happen after Donald Trump put in, what, three or four? I think it's four if you include Conan Barrett. 
conservative judges. This is what the Democrats were railing about, that he stacked the Supreme Court with conservatives and that this, therefore there would be something like this coming. They kind of knew this was coming. Yeah. But in their, in their complete like freak out about what was coming, namely a new precedent established at the Supreme Court level in, a, in another case, um, the result of which pushes the issue of abortion back onto local states to decide how they want, whether they want to ban it completely or be as liberal with it as they want. Um, there's on the on the face of it, there's no reason, you know, to be utterly hysterical about it. You know, um, yeah. We even have uh, Alejandro in the chat says in New Jersey, abortion is still legal and they will expand it. You know, so I'm looking at this news and I'm going, right, this is a whole, like, let's stir up a big shitstorm because yeah. we want to divide people even more and we want to get, you know, it's a hot button issue. So let's push all the right buttons to get everybody fired up. And, you know, like, and I mean, the, we were talking about it earlier. And one of the interesting things is like, this is the kind of thing that you expected to happen or that, that we expected to happen when Trump was president, because, of course, Trump was orange man bad. And, of course, you know. It's like he came into office and he thought like, yeah, I'm going to run the country just like the CEO of a corporation. That's how it works, right? And he very quickly discovered, obviously, no, that's not how it works. And so you can look back at like the rioting, Black Lives Matter, all that stuff, and you kind of go, right. Because the minute that Biden was elected, and especially, you know, Kamala Kamala Harris, you know, she got in. Kamala. It was like, oh, my God, the first black female vice president. Now their ratings are like rock bottom and like everyone doesn't even want to – even the Democratic Party doesn't want to talk about them. They're like an embarrassment, both of them. And suddenly you have you know, this same situation where you're going to have you – know, let's, let's just you know, kind of poke the bear and, and stir stuff up and get everybody hating each other uh, at the same time that all this crazy economic stuff is happening and fuel prices are sky high and – uh, well, let's just blame Putin for that, and um, it's kind of a big mess. Yeah, I'll get back to you in a sec. I do smell a kind of a, a contrivance about this in terms of the timing and the overall effect on polarizing the people further in the U.S. You know, my spidey sense is like you tingling about, oh, right, okay, things aren't going too good abroad. Internationally, U.S. standing is just plummeting. The dollar, of course, is also plummeting in value. Let's kick up something at home to keep people, you know, overall on side because at least if they're arguing with each other, they're still arguing, you know, uh, they're not they're not arguing about what to, to do about government, period. You know, they're arguing, it's divide and conquer. They're, they're fighting each other, right? Yeah. Now, but I don't think we can go so far as to suggest that the timing is, <clears throat> I think the, the Democrats are probably right. This is Trump's doing, so to speak, because this is this was gonna happen when you stacked a court with a heavy conservative majority. I think I think there's some truth to that. Um, so I could I I couldn't then suggest. Oh, I see. There's this conservative court is doing this now. What to hurt the current Biden government? I don't know. It's it's it's. I think this is a kind of like. Well, this was always going to happen, so to speak. What's different is that it's happening in such a polarized environment. Um, I sent you a link there. This is RT, but whatever. You can get this from anywhere. This is, the RT didn't you know, jump on the bandwagon to take a side or anything. 
or to, uh, you know, uh, have any schadenfreude about what's going on in the U.S. over this issue. It's just a basic rundown of what has changed as a consequence of this ruling. So what has changed? Biden claimed on Friday that his oh, headline simply is U.S. is now international outlier. Biden. Okay, what's that about? Biden claimed after the ruling that his country is now an outlier among developed nations. What the hell do you mean by that? Okay. However, while some states have pressed ahead with the banning the procedure, banning abortion, others are writing laws in line with other wealthy nations. And Democrat-run states permit far more permissive policies than many European countries. Um, blah, blah, blah. Biden addressed the nation. Um, what's interesting is here, scroll down a bit, Justice Alito argued in his argument that uh, Roe versus Wade rested on an egregiously wrong and exceptionally weak interpretation of the Constitution and that by striking down this ruling, the court, would, the court Supreme Court, would return the issue of abortion to state legislatures. Um, and yet the Biden White House is saying, oh, with this decision, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court shows how extreme it is how far removed they are from the majority of this country. They've made the United States an outlier among developed nations in the world. Okay, so does that, is that really the case? Prior to the court's ruling, the U.S. was one of only seven countries worldwide to, to permit unrestricted abortions beyond 20 weeks of pregnancy. One of only seven. So yes, it was, the U.S. was an outlier, but in the other direction, it seems. The other states of those list of seven are Canada, well, that's next door, culturally similar, China. China? The Netherlands, okay, that's in the West, North Korea, and Vietnam, and Singapore is also Western. So look at that. All these outliers, but in the reverse to what Biden meant by that term, where abortion is like on demand, so to speak. There's a total mix of Western and so-called conservative, culturally conservative, yet commie or former commie Asian countries. Hmm. Um, some Republican-controlled states have attempted to lower the cutoff to the point where a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So that's been the criteria. Much of the pro-life movement has gone with, you know, at what point do you decide, you know, they say, well, fetal heartbeat, and that's usually... Well, they say they're typically between 6 and 15 weeks into a pregnancy. Mississippi, Mississippi was one of these states, and the Supreme Court's Friday ruling was made in a case evaluating the legality of Mississippi's law banning abortion after 15 weeks. Okay, 15 weeks. Mississippi, you're thinking, oh, yeah, very conservative. Oh, that's, that's, that's way harsh, huh? But no. Even with its 15-week cutoff point, Mississippi's abortion law was more permissive than the policies of Austria, France, Spain, Ireland, Germany, and Italy, all of which ban abortion after between 12 or 14 weeks. Now, this, the next part, well, that's the status quo. Part of the hysteria of what's going on here is not so much the objective issue, the current objective status quo in each of the states in America, the hysteria is trying to, it seems it's trying to forestall a trend they see 
in far more far less permissive, far more stringent controls on abortion. So in the next paragraph, Mississippi it will soon ban almost all abortions. And it's the state is one of 13 with a, quote, trigger law on its books. These provide for a near total abortion ban to come into effect in the event of what has just happened, Roe versus Wade being overturned. And scroll up a little, please. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. I meant down a second. Um, okay. Abortion is expected to be banned except in the cases of rape, incest, or threat to the mother's life in the coming two weeks. So that that's interesting. That's part of the why now. You see, Scott, th- th- there have been 13 states um, while they couldn't do what they legislatively wanted to do locally, they kind of either, I don't know what, I guess it's part of a trend that's going on, you know. It's, this is what I put in the question mark in the title of the show. Is, is this part of the conservative backlash? They prepped much more conservative, stringent laws on the books in anticipation of this event happening. And that's partly probably why there's such a visceral reaction to what on the surface seems just, it's just simply the Supreme Court saying, hey, we're just, all we're doing is saying it goes back to the states from now on. There will be no more federal constitutionally protected right for a woman to have an abortion. We're not going to no longer force a state to provide for it. It's up to that state. So they're hysterical about that because, well, that's been the status, what's, what's 1973, 40, 50? Is that 50 years? It's half a century. Um, that's been the case. Let's see other things for comparison. Uh, the 13 states in question are listed in the next paragraph. Yes. And you can see they're all Heartland America, would have been Trump voters in the last two elections. Um They've all banned abortion in most cases since the ruling, or will do so in the coming days and weeks. Uh, but again, for comparison, abortion law in these most restrictive American states will then be in line with that of Poland. Poland's its own issue, though, because in within Europe, it has a uh, definitely it definitely has a more conservative um, position on it. Uh, other states for comparison, Arizona, Florida, and Georgia, Ohio, South Carolina, legislation will soon take effect banning elective abortions past the cutoff point between 6 and 15 weeks. Um, whereas, and that's kind of more stringent than Europe's. In comparison, though, Nebraska, Virginia, West Virginia have promised to introduce similar European-style restrictions in the near future. Um, access to abortion will remain unchanged in a number of mostly Democrat-run states, which is where most of the people doing most of the protesting live, you know? Nothing's going to change. No one is coming along to tell you what to do with your body. You know, most protesters, okay? Uh, Then they'll say, well, we're protesting for the women in all these other states. The women in all these other states, they've gone through a 50-year process of Intense discussion. This this topic has been just discussed to death in the United States. Clearly, their legislatures making these laws now 
this is the tail end of that long discussion. So you can stand up and scream for their rights all you want, but you're standing up and you're arguing, you're screaming against the democratic decisions of the women in those states. That's what they chose. Okay. And that gets into, well, maybe we should say, <clears throat> I want to say something about how this thing came about because Roe versus Wade is, it's it's kind of, it's, it's a bit nuts what happened, actually. The woman in question in the, in the specific case of Roe versus Wade. Um, <clears throat> maybe first, I don't know, as that last rundown of the actual situation for abortion rights in the U.S. shows, there's a mix between permissive and restricted in the U.S. With most states, I think, falling in line with the European standards, Western, certainly Western European standards. So what in the hell then is, what, why are European leaders saying stuff like this? This is the president of France. He's just won, though. Um, Macron uh, had just had to pipe up. Of course. <laughs> He's Jupiter. Macron, this is um, a tweet here about his statement. Macron opposed the revision of... Oh, actually, no. This isn't what... What he said, what he said was basically, oh, this is terrible, terrible backwards development in the United States, blah, blah, blah. This is someone else pointing out that France's current abortion laws are the same as Mississippi's. Macron opposed the revision of French law. So and there was a kind of a movement when he became president in 20, 2017, 18, to increase... Um, to extend the, the time scale for which a woman can have an abortion, I think into a second term or something. Macron opposed it. He opposed the revision of French law on the grounds that abortion later in pregnancy are more traumatizing for the women involved. Ex and this is a direct quote from him. Extended time limits are not neutral in terms of a woman's trauma. Well, okay, fine, but... That's 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 great, right? You know, he's on point, and he's explaining why he did not extend term limits. Um, but then, what? Why is he speaking up about the U.S.? You know, that's kind of another thing that sets off a spidey sense of when all the other Western leaders are like jumping on a bandwagon about something that isn't objectively any different. You know. It's when they're making a fuss about something that that's when you got to worry that something's a fight. I I think it's something like it's not the issue that they're capitalizing on per se. It's like they apparently what they all share in common is, of course, they're Western leaders. So they're all sensing that this is part of like a populist wave coming up. That's a threat to the regime status quo, which is basically homogenous and identical in all Western countries. And so this, you know, this would be only the, the beginning. In their minds, they're so paranoid. They really think that they fear this is, is indeed a conservative backlash or the, the opening act in one. 
Um, and then there's Trudeau. Oh, good Lord of mercy. This guy is just... I think in this case, I do have a direct quote. Justin Trudeau. I think he said something like, well, let's hear him. <clears throat> Today's a difficult day. The judgment coming out of the United States is an attack on women's freedom, and quite frankly, it's an attack on everyone's freedoms and rights. Let me be really, really clear. In Canada, we will always defend women's rights to choose and continue to work to expand uh, access to the full range of reproductive and health and services uh, across the country. But today, I think of those generations of women around the world and specifically in the United States who fought so hard to gain rights and continue to fight today to get more and more rights because there's still so much more work to do and are facing this devastating setback. It shows how much standing up and fighting for rights matters every day, that we can't take anything for granted that we need to continue to stand strong to defend everybody's rights and freedoms in Canada and where we are here internationally, standing up internationally as well, which Canada will do, whether it's uh, fighting for women's rights. All right, rights enough of that, Africa. Justin. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's, it's cringing, isn't it? I just... This every, is... every time I hear that man speak, like, I, like my, my foot starts twitching and like I have like this instinctive like kicking motion thing that occurs because he's just such a... Yeah, uh... a wet blanket. Um, again, that, that's the kind of thing that, that sets me off. Like, why is he weighing in like that? An attack on global freedom. Well, he's global. Remember what the global is for these people. Like, it's a few Western countries. So he means, ipso facto, he means within the realm of the Anglo-speaking world, the international community. So, of course, Macron is French, but they're kind of in that too, having been part of NATO for a couple of decades now. So... Yeah, he said something else as well, you know, basically, my body, my choice, you know, is parroting the, the protesters' line on that. Yeah. My body, my choice. This is the guy who said, you're going to be vaccinated or you're not leaving the country. So, yeah. obviously, that's a major hypocrisy in the center of all this as well. Um, these people did not care one whit for my body, my choice when it came to vaccinations. So, uh, it... The way this issue is just so polarized, um, the black and white um, thinking on it, and it's, it's obviously an issue mostly for Americans, but you know, with European leaders trying to stir the pot as well, and that guy, um, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's so similar to how the Black Lives Matter things are spilled out into protests like in Amsterdam, London, elsewhere in the West. I mean, systematic racism in the USA, so let's all protest everywhere about it. Let's all go on down our knees, you know? Um, still, though, I think the heart of it, this is kind of a uniquely American thing, as W would say. I mean, most Americans, I'm, sh I'm quite sure, would agree that obviously abortion 
should be permitted and facilitated, just not to the extent that it has been in some places. I um, I just kind of I I come back to I mean it, it it's like I know that there were things you know when Trump was president they they started they kind of started the ball rolling you know and uh, to me like when I heard you know when I first heard about the oh the you know the ruling is coming blah 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 and then like the whole shitstorm that that followed you know like I go and I read the other news and it's like. Um, yeah, uh, some dude in Germany came out and announced again that, uh, yeah, we need to start saving energy. Make your showers even shorter. Uh, in France, they just came out today and said uh, all the, you know, total total whatever, or total energy and EDF, whatever, all the, you know, electricity, gas, all, you know, oil, all the, the big companies came out and said, yeah, we need to start saving energy so that we can stock up, so that we can save the winter. And it's like... All the stuff that's going on with, you know, Russia going into Ukraine and then all the, the sanctions and everything. And, of course, everyone was getting kind of pissed off. So it's like on top of that, they just threw in this – I mean, yes, it was kind of planned the whole time. But it's still kind of fascinating to me that suddenly you have this issue where uh, the news is all about how American and European leaders are doing literally everything they can, like the dumbest possible things they can – and people are getting really, really hostile, and then they do what they always do, which is like, oh, you're all hostile? Here, here's a hot-button issue, abortion. And everybody gets out their crowbars and their pitchforks and their torches, and everybody's at everybody else's throat, and, and there you go. Uh, we have more chaos and more division, and it's like... Well, it's not everybody, though. It's, 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 your, it's your liberal cosmopolitans. You know what I mean? So on the one hand, yeah, it does, again, pit people against each other. Basically, essentially conservative versus essentially liberal people. But there's only one side that's like screaming at the sky about it, as it usually is on this topic. Um, so I suppose it is a win for conservative majority. And I think maybe just the, the powers that be sense that that's just not a good development. Yeah. Because they think, well, where will they go next with it, you know? Well, I, I, Pierre on the chat just he he just wrote when properly hystericized the conservatives are as bad as the liberals that's the drama of conservative backlash and that's kind of what I was getting at is okay. like I'm I'm looking at this whole thing and I'm going right I can understand well I mean you know ten years ago people like read my Facebook posts and they said like oh you're a left wing liberal you're super super liberal today they read them and they say oh you're one of those right wing conservatives I'm like dude I didn't change what I posted. I'm posting the same stuff I posted back then. So like left and right are shifting and everything. And you have this, this giant, like, you know, tornado of insanity. And, uh, in terms of, you know, the left wing, you know, LGBTQ, everything and blah, blah, blah. And then, and, and so you get all these conservatives who are kind of, uh, like, no, 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 we don't want that. But conservatives generally will, uh, not run around setting things on fire. Generally speaking, I'm sure there are some that do. Um, and then you have this hot button issue and they're like, yeah, take that liberals, you know, and some of them do tend to get, you know, go a little overboard. And so there are many of them, I, I think, are kind of thinking like, yeah, this is great. Finally, we conservatives, we're taking everything over again, except, you know, are they really or are they just they're just being taken in by not all of them, of course, mm. but, you know, many of them will probably just, you know. And even on the left, I'm sure not everybody, you know, obviously, 
obviously everyone on the left is not running out and setting fire to, you know, cities and stuff. Hmm. Um, but it's, it's like, yeah, they, they pick the one issue that will get everybody really, really, really agitated. And especially in America, it's like, you know, and then the European leaders go like, Oh, Oh yeah. Yeah. Abortion in America. We're, we're never going to do that because think of all the women who they, they suffered so horribly and blah, 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 you know, and, yeah. Uh, you know, meanwhile, they're like, yeah, let's send more weapons to Ukraine. Let, let's send another 45 million, 4 billion, you know, and, and, and then the Russians announced like, yeah, all those weapons you just sent, we just blew them all up. By the way, France, uh, we just got your, your, your little mobile howitzers, you know, and yeah, we're reverse engineering them. <laughs> yeah. That says and no one's talking about that because they're all talking about abortion. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, the, for me on these major like, I I, I don't think obviously any common sense view would accept that there can be no one size fits all, especially in a country the size of the United States, three hundred some million people. The U.S. was also large when that decision was first made, the Supreme Court decision in nineteen seventy three. Um. And I think it's worth actually looking at the woman who was um, at the center of that. So she was Jane Roe, which is kind of like John Doe. She was anonymous for decades. Until 1989, I think she outed herself on a talk show. Um, <clears throat> so this is the Wikipedia page about the case, Roe versus Wade. Um, her real name was Norma McCorvey. It says here that McCorvey would later claim that during the 70s she had a nightmare concerning, quote, little babies lying around with daggers in their hearts. This was the first of a series of occurring nightmares which kept her awake at night. Uh, she became worried and wondered what, have I, what really had I done. Um, it says later... Further down, during the years after Roe, although not immediately, McCorvey joined with and accompanied others in the abortion rights movement. During this time, McCorvey stated that she had publicly lied about being raped and apologized for making the false rape claim. Okay, hang on a second. That was why there was a case in the first place. She was trying to appeal against the Texas government, the Texas DA, that she should have an abortion because... I was raped. And a Texas law at the time says, nope. So she she made up a false rape claim to get that case going. That's crazy. Um, and then you hear McCorvey, a decade later, became part of the movement against abortion from 1995 until shortly before her death in 2017. Holy smokes. So she regretted it. She turned about in her view of abortion. Um, and then there's a, the, because this concerns the individual, right? Individual rights. Let's, let's look at the individual who was at the center of this case. At the bottom of it, if you scroll down a little bit more, um, yes, under McCorvey's third child. So she wasn't able to get an abortion because it was too late by the time the case was solved. I think she had the baby and gave it up for adoption. Um, so this woman, her daughter, Shelley Lynn Thornton, Thornton um, 
she grew up not knowing that she was the fetus in the Roe case until her birth mother appeared on the Today Show in 1989 and talked about her desire to meet her daughter. Um, This goes on to explain that they did not actually meet, although they had some contact over the phone and the conversation... Yes, towards the end, she nearly met her birth mother in 1994, but on the phone, McCorvey told her, McCorvey, uh, uh, Jane Rowe, told her daughter that she would, that she should have thanked her for not having an abortion. Thornton's visceral reaction was, what? I'm supposed to thank you for getting knocked up and then giving me away? She told her birth mother that she would never, ever thank her for not aborting me. My point in bringing attention to this is the kind of the tragedy at the heart of the case. So the whole point of Roe versus Wade decision was women's rights, the individual woman's right to choose. Well, the individual woman in question regretted her decision. Her daughter, the baby ended up growing up and then had no relationship with the daughter. I mean... It's just messed up. So she regretted. She, she made up a false claim to get the case going. She regretted doing it in the end. She ended up joining anti-pro-abortion, uh, pro-life movements. Um, it also describes in that uh, Wikipedia summary of the case that, you know, she never envisaged that it, abortion would become a means of birth control because she it, all through the eighties and the nineties and into eighties and nineties, she would have women who now recognize her because she'd gone public on TV come up to her and say, thank you, thank you. I've had six or seven abortions so far. Thank you so much. And she would be horrified herself. She just, for whatever reasons, she didn't want the child, this third child at the time. She never thought it would be like a birth control measure, but that is how it came to be used in practice. So, Individual women's rights. Well, the individual woman who was held up by the Supreme Court as the standard for the entire 300 million people to follow did not want to be the standard, did not expect that her standard would create the social results that came. I don't know how many, something like this is a crazy figure of the number of abortions that have happened in the U.S. since Roe versus Wade, something like 60 million or something. Um, and indeed there have been some I don't know it's mostly anecdotal but in the social media age there are women who post about you know they gloat about how how many abortions they've had they really do see it as a birth control measure like um, Norma McCorvey was discussed to learn about Um, so I just don't understand. Like, have these women never heard of like natural cycles, and you know, just well. Here's the thing: before I start lecturing women on what they should and should do, (laughs) there's a whole constellation. You cannot take abortion in isolation. There's a whole constellation of issues that are connected with it, and if you just try to fix it with one change in a law or in a Supreme Court ruling, there's a whole other raft of issues that are untouched. Of course, there's, there are going to be other consequences. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I want to say much more about that because, uh, yeah, 
I think well, I think that's interesting because it shows it shows the reality of you know Roe v. Wade. Uh, that was like you know when I was too young to understand what Roe v. Wade was. Uh, it was explained to me in very simple terms. Well, I wasn't really too young. I was not fully an adult, let's say, teenager, you know, and like, oh, this is what it is. And it, and it was like, this is, this was momentous, you know, it was like, blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, here you read that Wikipedia entry and you go, oh, right, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Like, there's humanity involved there. There are people making decisions that affect not only their lives, but the life of an unborn child. And, and of course, you know, they talk about, well, yes, uh, uh, the the baby is officially alive when you can detect a heartbeat. Okay, like th- that kind of comes back to you know I made a video about AI recently and uh, this this Google AI talking about you know uh, Lambda you know and like is it sentient or not is it conscious or not mm. How do you know when a baby is sentient How do you know when a baby is conscious How do you know that a baby is alive And then so right and you can say you know. I posted on Facebook about this and like, I'm of two minds. I think that it should be allowed. You should be allowed to have an abortion. And I also think you should not be allowed to have an abortion. And people hate that because mm. they're like, you have to take a side, pick a side. You're, <laughs> you know, like their heads explode, you yeah. know? And I'm like, no, if, if you're, there's something to say for maybe not running around sleeping with everyone and finding a truly loving relationship and doing the, you know, kind of like, you know, becoming the person that you want to be so that something like that happens and then you have children together and blah, 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 you know. There's also something to say for people who just make silly mistakes. There's also, you know, you have to also consider rape. I mean, I don't even want to imagine what it would be like to be a woman and to be raped and to have to make that choice because it's obviously like, you know, like would you want that that man's child, like, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't, Mm. but then think about what that means. And you have to live with it for the rest of your life. Mm. If you have somebody who you even like and you, you know, shack up with them and blah, and you become pregnant and maybe you even love that person. Maybe it's, it's actually going well, but it's like not the right time. And you make that decision to abort that fetus, baby, whatever you want to call it. Um, You have to live with that decision for the rest of your life. It's not, I mean, you know, some woman running around going like, yeah, I've had like 13 abortions. It's awesome, man. I love my right to choose. I mean, psychologically, what has that done yeah. to that poor woman? And, and, and it was her choice, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like, and then some people would say, yeah, but you shouldn't feel sorry for her because, you know, Jesus said it was bad or, you know, whatever. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, oh, there's a lot of, you know, you have to factor in the humanity and the, the, the pain and the psychological, you know, blowback from that kind of thing and it is never a simple cut and dried you know i mean as far as i'm concerned it's like what business does government what business do do politicians what business does like even even the supreme court have issuing any kind of, of of edict or law or something on that issue because it's like how do you we don't even know what constitutes alive or not alive or human or or not yeah. human. Yeah. Is it two cells? Is it a fetus with a heartbeat? Is that life or not? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's 
and then you pile on top of that all the all the the emotional stuff the psychological burdens the so it's like i look at this and it's like yeah they're just trying to push people's buttons and and get them all fired up and it's yeah. uh if you really stop and think about it like i don't want to be one or the other i don't want to be pro choice and i want i don't want to be pro life i want to be both and yeah that's uh that's my take on abortion anyway yeah um you touched on the, the overall problem i think is that governments were over the course of the 20th century were getting involved in things they shouldn't have which produced side effects they didn't intend which produced more legislation to deal with those side effects the net result is today you've got people who are so atomized and so completely dependent on the government um their behavior generally is abysmal they're not awake aware independent people in contrast you know with how i guess a lot of people would have been when they were fending for themselves um and forced to choose their make their decisions carefully we've been encouraged to make people have been encouraged to make bad decisions because government will be there to to, to mop up after you you know yeah. uh it's pro-cyclical like it, you, you touched on these other things like um just as governments cannot fix problems for people or if they do they end up making more problems the same with judges uh, i agree with the supreme court decision today specifically about its criticism of the supreme court decision then they should never have been making that kind of decision at that level um so while that's going on and you know conservative backlash question mark there's this okay well this this sounds like another win right headline transgender women and it's got a photo of that leah thomas woman everyone's seen um woman man huh? i don't know transgender women swimmers barred from female competitions by fina Okay, so that looks like it's another part of a conservative backlash, right? A win for common sense. Except it isn't because this thing is just, there's a force going on here that's at work where government or courts or whatever are still all going one way in the same direction overwhelmingly it's still a progressive climate and they're progressing to the point of just complete distortion of everything this is a headline from last week biden government moves to remove title x title um nine rights for women in favor of gen gender identity protections what the hell is that about scroll down <clears throat> biden's department of education has released a proposal for changes to Title IX, which includes erasing biological sex from issues of sex discrimination. The proposal will conflate, conflate protections for biological sex with gender identity and see, see no differentiation between the two. The, this Title IX was enacted half a century ago, same as Roe v. Wade. It was intended to curb sex-based discrimination against women at universities. Okay, what's the problem with that? Fast forward to today's 50-year anniversary. It's now being used for something else. Scroll down to the next paragraph. They're now using it 
to say that a man who identifies as a woman is entitled to the same rights as a woman. No surprise to anyone here. My point is simply that this is being legislated consistently. So the Supreme Court decision, like, it's in one area, but the overwhelming direction of all things is in the continued ultra-liberal approach whereby if I identify as a woman, I can participate and I have the same rights as a woman. Even to the obvious, in-your-face, like, it doesn't take decades. It, it, it can happen very quickly, even to the obvious detriment of the actual biological women around me. You know, it's so destructive, and they can't see it. I don't know. At least with abortion, you know, it took a couple of decades for results to come in to see that actually this was being used not to help women who had been in extreme cases where they were raped. It was actually being used as birth control. You know, decades later, you can see the social consequences of government um, getting involved with very personal individual choices. But nowadays, like, this thing with um, uh, pushing a whole other, it's a whole other world where they're saying that, you know, uh, transgender people, is in this context here, Basically, biological men, because they went through puberty, they, they are men who underwent maybe some kind of sex change, are entitled to the same rights as women. Like, so y you can, um, you can interpret the Roe versus Wade overturning as a victory on abortion, on that single issue. But it's taking place in the context of an overwhelming trend towards this ultra-progressive, ultra-liberal distortion of everything that was argued 50 years ago in Roe versus Wade. I mean, you, know, you, notice, you notice that in all, the, all this hysteria in the last few days since the Supreme Court decision, no one on the left is saying is calling them uh, birthing people with uteruses. Yeah. No, 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 they're screaming about women's rights. My body, my choice. Women, they're all saying women. I mean, two weeks ago, it was, you have to ask them, well, what is a woman? You know, they, they would... <laughs> yeah, that is, that is pure, unadulterated crazy-making. Yeah. That yeah. one week you can say, no, we can't define a woman based on her physical attributes or, you know, chromosomes or genetics or it has nothing to do with anything physical. It's all about <clears throat> what the woman, the, the person feels like. You can't say mother, you have to say birthing person. And then in the next breath, to be like, abortion! And get everybody fired up and talk about women and women's rights and blah, blah, blah. When you've just said that you can't, you, that that's like designed specifically to drive everyone mad yeah. and turn their brains to mush, period. Like there's no other interpretation that I can think of that it's it's like they're just trying to make everyone lose their minds, and it's probably working. Yeah, it's it's unbelievable hysteria. Um, okay, maybe we should move on a bit. Um, we can touch touch back on this because it's all connected. What's going on in the U.S. socially, politically? Um, you know, 
my body, my choice. The, the <laughs> it's not it's not hypocrisy that they don't make the connection with the vaccines. It's more like it's 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 in a sense it's worse than that, and in a sense it's just not that at all. These people are asleep, and like I mean that kind of literally. They don't make the connection and then scramble in their minds to cover it up, you know, or to weasel their way out of it. They just don't make the connection. Yeah. You know, libs of TikTok or whoever else does comparative tweets of what somebody said when they were screaming for mandatory vaccines. And no, it's not your body and your choice. No, you don't get to say that. Are the same people now making that exact same argument? Even though this isn't going to impact their choice on abortion at all as an individual anywhere in the United States. But um, so on that, on that topic, I want to, namely the vaccines, I want to check in on St. Fauci. Remember Uh-oh. that guy? I know. He's back? He never went away. But the <laughs> only thing that's different is that the national spotlight, uh, the global spotlight, has shifted off him. He's still parting the same things he was two years ago. So this is him last week. Okay. Hopefully, the more people that get vaccinated and boosted and the more people that realize the importance of when you have a high level of viral dynamics, that when you're in an indoor setting, you should wear a mask, even though the whole world, including the United States and the UK, are just worn out and tired by this outbreak. It isn't over yet. People need to realize it is never going to go back to zero. That's not the nature of this virus. Remember me? I'm still here. I don't know who he's talking to there, but that's obviously not a major TV network. Um, I'm yeah. still important. Really? I'm still there. I'm still St. Fauci, right? Um, the whole world. Even the U.S. and the U.K., like that's the whole world. Okay, for starters. Um, this is the guy. You know he got covid I think before this, earlier in June, um, he still believes anyway. He's a believer. He's never going to live this down. Um, the But that's, you know, he's kind of right. I mean, COVID is, SARS-CoV-2 and ours variants, they're endemic in the population. There are still flare-ups, but obviously, like it's nowhere near as violent or fatal to people as it was. Yeah, debatably, even debatably at the very beginning of it. Um, but the creepy thing is, like again, government, the Biden administration this week. Um, Biden's talking about oh, there's going to be a second pandemic, and then he's like, uh, oh, he didn't do anything. The U.S. government has rolled out vaccines for kids. Um, I think, was this not the case before? I don't know why this was news. This week. I thought that vac- the COVID shots were already being given to toddlers. Apparently not. June 22nd. Oh, this is a horrible picture, an article or headline, but it's, <laughs> it's presented as matter-of-factly. Let's see what listeners think of this. Make of it what you will. New York Post, June 22nd. So, yeah, this is four days ago. Toddler tears as the nation's children begin to receive COVID shots. COVID shots begin to receive. So oh, That was the the same Fauci tweet. 
Oh, was it? Okay. In any event, it's actually just a, it's not worth putting up. I think there's not a news item. It's just a bunch of, I don't know what they were thinking there. New York Post put up like a bunch um, of photos of toddlers being, getting their first shot and they're all, they're all screaming and tears. They don't want it, you know, but maybe, I don't know. That's what they'll always do when they're getting, you know, the ouchie, the vaccine of any kind. Um, it's, it sure isn't over. COVID, it won't be COVID, the next thing, but the COVIDianism sure isn't over. This is, this is something that I'm sure I have. This is the German health minister last week. Um, this guy is pretty hardball. He was one, Germany was on the verge of uh, issuing a mandatory order for all, all adults just before someone sent a signal and the West dropped COVID uh, earlier this year. Let's have a listen. Dank Ihrer Leistung ist das gelungen. Diejenigen, die hier gegen die Impfung protestieren, haben dazu keinen Beitrag geleistet und sollten eigentlich nicht hier Okay, I should probably explain for those of you listening, he's he's at a rally for supporters of the German government in its COVID policies. And there's a is a um a counter protest there, booing and hissing him, and he's like saying, Thank you to all my supporters and you over there, you impotent people, you don't have a right to be here. You did nothing to help in this uh in this the government's fight against COVID. Like I suppose as my point in showing that was the extent to which at least in some people in government they really believed. I mean, they believed hard, like Fauci. And for them, they just need the signal and they'll go again with the whole thing, you know. Maybe it won't work like that in practice. Um, that's why I'm wondering about Biden's certainty. He gave an off-the-cuff, it appeared to be off-the-cuff statement last week. Um, at a conference about, he gave a press statement about something else. But he interjected in the middle of the, there's going to be a second pandemic. Yeah, it's coming. So does he know something? I don't know. Um on this thing about vaccinating kids, um, I don't know if we should say this or we'll get in trouble because the, <laughs> the person in question has been banned from everywhere in the West. RFK Jr. Maybe I won't play it, but you can find it, I think. He gives, he's in an interview, I think it's in the last month, with um, Jordan Peterson's daughter. What's her name? Michaela. Michaela. And he has a theory for why this is only now like COVID vaccines are being rolled out for infants up to toddlers, three and four, five-year-olds. I can't remember what, what the cutoff age for, for them was. Um, <clears throat> it's kind of creepy, but I'll just summarize it briefly. He claims that um, the... 
when the COVID vaccine was under emergency use authorization, the companies could not be held liable. You see, you couldn't sue, you couldn't see the company. Well, you couldn't see the company anyway because they created indemnity with the states, but you couldn't sue you couldn't sue anyone. You couldn't sue the state governor. You couldn't sue the leader of your country, your government, etc., or the doctor or whatever. But after, in the U.S. anyway, it, was, it became an officially adap- uh, adopted. Um, uh, it, never, it never went through the full trials, of course. But nonetheless, when it shifted from emergency use to, yes, the government backs this therapeutic means of dealing with COVID, the vaccine, you could... Except, he says, you, you could um, sue if you uh, had a vaccine injury or death from it in your family. Orica Jr. says he's looked at all the, the bylaws on this and he says there's one loophole. If the vaccine is still being used for young children, what age? I'm not sure. Maybe, it's, maybe he explains it further in his interview with Michaela Peterson. There's a loophole where... Uh, that indemnity remains in place. In other words, they cannot they, they cannot be, sh- be sued for vaccine injuries as long as it's also being used on young children. I think because that kind of puts it back into emergency use or something like that. Anyway, that's that's his theory for because on the face of it, prima facie, there's no reason. Everyone agrees. The data is super clear. It's controversial to say this that the youngest, especially, have no threat from COVID whatsoever. So why push a mass vaccination campaign for toddlers? You know. So that's his theory anyway. Um, another COVID-related development. This is actually from earlier in the month. Um, again, I mean, it's, it's horrifying because this is something I said. We both said uh, right at the beginning of this, it was, it was really obvious to us, but it's interesting that the people saying this now were central to organizing the quote-unquote pandemic response at the outset of it. This is an article from a local newspaper headlined, The Lockdowns Were a Failure. What they're citing is, if you scroll down, that's from June 2nd, so it's this month, Um an analysis of studies of the effects of lockdowns on COVID-19 mortality has been released by a team of researchers at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, don't, don't quote Johns Hopkins University because they had the COVID map and I was quoting it on Facebook and everyone was like, no, no, don't use numbers from Johns Hopkins because they're official and they're real and no. Sorry, didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I don't understand. What's their no, because they had the, the Johns Hopkins University was the one they had the the COVID map, you yeah, know, yeah. and I kept using the numbers of like, you know, people who got it, people who died, blah, 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 to show that like, look, this is not the crazy pandemic that everyone is saying. And like everyone, well, not everyone, but uh, far too many people totally ignored it. So it's like, even though it's Johns Hopkins University, which if you say that in America, it's like, oh, Johns Hopkins. So everyone should be falling all over themselves to pay attention to this. But of course they won't because it's Johns Hopkins. So I'm kind of being... <laughs> You know, sarcastic. Right, right. Well, they published a study, uh, COVID-19 pandemic, a review of the global lockdown and its far-reaching effects. Published in the journal Science Progress. 
and they concluded that, quote, the impact of the lockdown has had far-reaching effects in different strata of life, including changes in the accessibility and structure of education delivered to food to students, food insecurity as a result of unavailability and fluctuation in prices, the depression of the global economy, increase in mental health challenges, well-being and quality of life, among others. Um, yeah. Other studies reviewed by the researchers found that lockdowns had contributed to political unrest, domestic violence, and the undermining of liberal democracy. What? Yeah. But I thought Putin <laughs> did all that, right? You see the, the bullshit that we have to deal with here. This has all been parlayed off into, oh, the Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine war, and therefore Putin's fault, you know? But here, the people who are at the center of pandemic response in 2020 are acknowledging that, in fact... The chief measure taken to quote contain the contain the pandemic has led to the chronic problems we're seeing today. Um, I don't think it's mentioned here, but somewhere else, like maybe it was a separate study or something, they said that oh, lockdowns maybe reduced fatality in the United States during the pandemic by point two percent. So, uh, by the way, I'm remembering that from a headline. So that was published in a mainstream news article in the British Daily Mail. Well, this this part's interesting. It found that children, on average, learn almost nothing in the weeks they receive virtual education, with the effect particularly pronounced in less educated homes where the negative effects for children with low educated parents were 60% greater than those from well-educated homes. But of course, we have to, you know, it's all about saving the poor and disadvantaged and equality and. Yeah, yeah. Lockdowns had the worst effect. Yeah, the, the lower you were on the socioeconomic scale. Um, again, could have told you that right at the beginning, but no, they didn't give a damn. They were going ahead and they were going to save Grandma by destroying a lot of people's lives. Um, something else that's connected with all of this. This is this, another follow a part of the fallout that this um, John Hos Johns Hopkins, the summary of their report, anyway, doesn't mention at all. Um, this is largely anecdotal stuff, but the number of kind of viral cross infections taking place in the general population are on the rise. Um, like ancient diseases returning. Headline here, polio found in UK for the first time in nearly 40 years. Um, unknown outbreak of, oh, outbreak of hepatitis in children of unknown origin. I think that's also in the UK and in the US. Um, Wasn't, didn't Fauci mention the US and the UK? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I think probably what's going on here is... I've discussed this with people in the know. Well, in the know, they have a better idea of this than I do. It's something like possible recombinations with retroviruses. In other words, you can have the remnants of older viral sequences from old disease diseases be reawakened from tinkering around with the human genome 
although they claim that that's not what mRNA vaccines do, but they do um, have this, that effect. So, yeah, you've probably noticed this yourself in, in your own environment, people getting sick in the summer. Like last summer, I had a kind of bronchitis. It never happens in the summer. A bunch of us were sick here a month ago. Yeah. Um, with a bunch of symptoms, some of which sounded COVID-like, you know, some of which weren't. God knows. It, there's definitely, I think that's something to keep in mind, like the recombination of very old things. And you're like, oh, how did that happen? That came out of the blue. You know, it's it's all connected. When you start tinkering with viruses, um, you don't know what you're going you're gonna to open up. Um, before I leave this, oh God, I think this is connected because this is this Biden press conference that I was talking about earlier. Um, Joe Biden. No, <laughs> no, it's something else. People have probably seen it. There's a close-up photo. Did you see it, Scott, where he's... Um, it's not a press conference, but the press are invited to participate. And someone did a close-up of the notes. Uh, it's actually not notes, plural. It's just a little yeah. card. And on the back of it, it's, it's crazy. I have a, have a close-up of it here. No. Yeah, I saw it on. Uh, I think somebody, I was Facebook or Twitter or something. Some somebody shared it, and I was like, "Oh my god, if that is real, yeah, right. we're in we're in big trouble." I have a close up, but it doesn't show the whole thing. I'll just read out to people on the back of his card as he's talking to the press. Um, it must be something to do with climate change because the the top of his card says offshore offshore wind drop by sequence of events offshore wind probably to do with the green agenda anyway the first bullet point on his note is you enter the roosevelt room and say hello to participants second one is you take your seat <laughs> and and you is capitalized in case he's wondering <laughs> you know does wait does you mean me or the other the other you in the room, the other or you. the other you that has a copy of his notes, or yeah, I don't know. That's just. <laughs> but the thing is, even if that's it's not, I mean, you know, you see that stuff, and the first thing I think is like, right, okay, is this is this like a meme, you know? And then everybody shares it, and then somebody says, no, it's not real. But the fact remains, like, uh, you know, even Biden's own side in the political conflict, like they're all, many of them anyway, are like sick to death of him and making fun of him for being, you know, a little bit not there. And so, yeah, it's like, even if it's not real, uh, everyone can see at this point. And there again, uh, that was something that uh, I was yelled at for saying back when Biden was first elected president. Uh, and I also poked a little fun at Kamala Harris going like, seriously, just because she's a black woman doesn't mean she's like Jesus, you know, for, for VP. And now everyone's like, oh, my God. Yeah. that woman is dumb as a rock. And I'm like, I told you she was dumb as a rock. And y'all were like, no, no, no. Uh, oh, you must be like a, you know, a, a white supremacist or something. I'm like, no, I just have a functioning brain. You know, that's, yeah. 
it's kind of frustrating sometimes, you know. Yeah. Um. Okay. Enough on that. There, there are a few other items, but um. Yeah, COVID. COVID is done, but uh, they're gonna come back with something else because they have, they have people like queuing up to get a smallpox vaccine outside clinics in New York yeah. because of a monkey virus scare that was, you know, on a scale compared with the extent to which they ramped up a scare about COVID. It's pittance. But just that little brief mention of monkeypox here and there has people going, where do I get the vaccine? Yeah. So people are primed. They're all ready for worse to come, you know? Anyway, I want to move on to... Uh, more something that's more in my domain geopolitics um we'll talk about ukraine as well um there's not much to really update people with in ukraine because it's kind of more of the same there's been kind of an acceleration of trends um the trend being that russia's winning not ukraine so this week first mentioned that it's an interesting parallel that there was a BRICS conference at the same time that there's a g7 conference a g7 you know Still, it's like a, kind of like Fauci. It still wants to be relevant, so they massively amplify their importance by having media talk about G seven, G seven. You know, not that most people probably care or know what G seven is, but you no, know, a lot of people do. By comparison, though, no one gets to hear that there's a BRICS conference, and that the BRICS conference is way more significant in terms of where things are going out there. Um, Biden, again, this week, blames Putin um, for high gas prices in the United States. I don't know who still, still takes that seriously in America. Probably the people who take, who get hysterical about everything else. Um, what's interesting is what he claims to be doing about it, you know, which is actually nothing except <laughs> blame Putin for it. Um, right um, the thing about Biden and Putin blaming Putin for what's going on is actually best answered by Putin himself I talked about it a little bit last week but Putin gave a super speech at the St. Petersburg Forum um, that's been going like 20 years now but Year after year, it gets kind of bit, a little bit more coverage in the West because of the stature. No matter how much they try to make people hate him, the fact is Putin's stature grows and grows. Um, he directly responded to, you know, Putin's price hike um, with a bit of a joke, but then he gave a serious explanation of what's going on. Um, <clears throat> th this is great because it's simple. You can check it out for yourself. You probably need to do some reflection of because none of us would have the kind of numbers that Putin has in his head when he comes up with these conclusions. But he says that the West's problems are years in the making. It's not just the Ukraine war. He, he acknowledged in the speech, though, um, that, yes, it may have contributed somewhat to um, inflationary pressures the world over, you know, he didn't completely throw it out the window, but he said, like, it's a tiny, tiny crisis relative to everything that's happened. I think what he was referring to was COVID and the lockdowns. Um, 
he said, this is a quote, the West printed up to 40% of its entire currency in the last three, four years, so beginning of COVID especially. Then with those printed dollars and euros, it's worse than the US, but the EU did similar, you know, with quantitative easing, something like 25% of all euros in existence were printed just in the last three years. And then he explained what they're doing. They took this newly printed money, then went around buying up as much as possible of global commodities. Um, and this is my conjecture here. I think they knew this is like a kind of grab. Um, it's it's fascinating because it's basically hoarding on a massive scale. It's it's people hoard. You know, whenever there's a crisis, we saw at the beginning of how people respond when the lockdowns were first introduced. People panic went panic buying and toilet paper was gone and rice was gone and flour and stuff. That's what people do. Well, it's happening on this scale as well because he basically said that they printed monopoly money, went out and bought up as much as possible of goods, commodities all, the, all over the world. And he gave some kind of figures. He said um, typically in the last decade, the U.S. would import about $350 billion worth of goods per year or something. Um, and it, it's gone up a huge amount. It's like 450, 500 billion. They're, they're, the amount of inward flowing trade versus the outward flowing stuff the, the West produced is, is massively distorted. They just basically are buying up as much as they can of everything the world over. With money... He didn't say this, Putin, but I think this is what he was implying. With money that they suspect was going to be worthless soon. So uh, all these other countries are going to hold euros and dollars. What are they supposed to do with them? You know? Um, I think, um, yeah, on the main piece of evidence he had for that theory, that kind of important macroeconomic theory for what's going on was that he said you could balance you can you can do an account and you can see the amount of money increase of euros and dollars and the amount of inward trade commodities stuff they were buying in the EU and in the US and they match so that was a that was a fascinating economics lesson from Putin um that is just even among government skeptics like or skeptical academics or people who really do try to drill down the figures and find out what's going on, good and analysts in the West, I don't think I've ever heard them explain it like that. I don't think they understand that that's what's happened. Um, it's And it's pretty scary if you think about it because it does suggest, again, Putin didn't say this, I think so, that they're doing it knowing that they know there's nothing to back up what they have bought all this stuff for. So they'll get it all quick and then they'll have commodities later with which to trade with other people. Um, anyway, uh, on a, as a side note to that, the um, I think it's the head of Gazprom Alexei Miller, also at the St. Petersburg conference, 
he gave a, a, a separate fascinating talk and he said that um, the world is changing fundamentally and money, he said, would no longer be used the way it has been. What will count again in the future will be commodities. So the, the, a country, country A won't accept from country B payment, specie, currency. They will, they will have, there will have to be a not, not strictly a bartering, but a reasonable trade of goods and services both ways. You no longer just be able to um, go around and buy your way into it or bribe your way into anything, um, which is super interesting. If anyone knows the history of the opium wars and how the West became the top dog in the 18th century, the the reason for the opium wars between Britain initially and then other European powers and China was because the Chinese began to refuse currency payments for the people who wanted to buy all their goods. Um, they said instead, what we want is uh, hard silver or gold. And this made them super rich. Initially, that it meant it was part of the drive actually for why the Spanish went to South America and just took as much gold as they possibly could. It was to pay the eastern countries for their goods, the spices, silks, um, even their technologies, actually. All sorts of stuff you couldn't get in Europe. Anyway, um, in the process of that, the Europeans were like, actually. It's really hard to get currency, the hard silver or gold to pay these people. And so the British came up with this idea of um, flooding the country with opium through China, through India. Um, anyway, that all began with a currency war. And I think what we might be seeing now is a, a reversal, a reversing back to more of a status quo before um, Western currencies became dominant. First, the British pound, and then after that, of course, today, the US dollar. Um, this situation where there'll be one all-powerful currency, that effectively means everyone else in the world has to pay a little bit of a tax to every time they use it as tribute. That's over. Anyway, um... Yeah, that, that kind of goes along with the whole uh, – oh, I was reading all kinds of interesting stuff. First of all, like, you know, BRICS and everything, they're saying, like, no, 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 we're going to go back to, like, commodities-backed multi, multi-currency basket plus commodities plus blah, blah, blah. And then you have the U.S., and they're going, like, you know, they've done things like – well, I mean, I know, like, in the techie world, they, they talk about, like, fabless companies, fabless, F-A-B. Uh, in other words, we design – a microchip that does whatever that's used in everything except uh we don't actually manufacture it tsmc in taiwan does it which is one of the reasons why the whole china going and invading taiwan thing that's why everyone is pooping their pants uh that's a story for another time uh when, when they do actually do it because they will uh for that for other reasons but primarily for that one i think um but the U.S. is like um, – there was another article about uh, 
the U.S. government, Congress, whatever, they passed something called like the the Chips Act or something, and the whole thing was started during Trump's time, and like it was like, okay, we're going to give you like fifty two billion to build semiconductor fabs in the United States. And now they're having a problem because they said, well, we passed the bill, but we didn't pass the funding part. So you've got all these American companies where, you know, the, the economy back during Web 2.0, it became like the information economy. We don't have to manufacture everything. That's actually accelerated to the point of utter absurdity because there is so little stuff that the U.S. makes and it's all like they're relying on the dominance of the dollar. Yeah. And of course, BRICS and especially Russia and China know that, and you're you're basically seeing that whole house of cards collapse in slow motion. And I think it's gonna be not fun. Uh, right. Also, not fun for us in Europe because you know Europe just goes along with whatever. Exactly, it does whatever the US says. Yeah, but they also they behave in the same way, maybe not to the same extent. But the euro has been, yeah, it's crazy the amount of just printing. It's monopoly money. There's nothing backing it. Um, that's interesting what you said about, um, the, the, because, yeah, this, this has other consequences. Actually for the Ukraine war, there was a, there was some British think tank that published an article last week, the same one we quoted before, actually, when we were looking at a real, we wondered, is there anyone in the West who really thinks Ukraine can win? And so we pulled up, pulled up this think tank, um, from the top British military think tank, article from just before the war started and they said Ukraine doesn't stand a chance you know <laughs> anyway the same people the same think tank published an article this week um, it was covered really well by um, Mercurius of the Duran he broke it down and he explained what they're saying in it that no one else not even the United States has the manufacturing capacity anymore to generate enough uh, weapons for Ukraine. Russia can do this all day because they have the manufacturing base yeah. right there beside. They have the raw materials to keep building them right there beside. Their economy, uh, their manufacturing isn't based on just in time. The U.S.'s is. That's why we have those articles where we're like, holy shit, this can't be right. No, it's right. The Pentagon is a third down on all of a certain type of gun. On some, on some of the guns that Ukraine needs. That's why the French Cesar howitzers were going. The U.S. doesn't have enough similar, apparently, of what Ukraine needs. It just doesn't yeah. have them to give because they stopped making them or they stopped making parts, key components Yeah. because they rely on a global economy and $1 to back it all up. They were so confident that dollar supremacy would always mean everything would keep flowing in. And that's not happening that's it's not happening it's partly because their own sanctions are causing snafus all along the supply chain to the point where we mentioned it last week the u.s government is having to secretly go back to like big agricultural companies and say behind closed doors Psst, yeah we know the sanctions on russian fertilizers and stuff but just ignore them ignore our own sanctions we'll turn a blind eye keep buying them because it needs to keep coming in or we're screwed. <laughs> yeah. That, that's only one. That's a kind of an ideological snafu. That's one thing. But the main point here is that there's a literal physical snafu. The U.S. doesn't have the manufacturing base for a land-based war anyway. It can build ships, maybe. I don't know if even that's still the case anymore. Um, 
So that's how just uh, anyway, this article was saying just on that footing alone, the logic of the kind of war that's happening, the West cannot give Ukraine enough. It would, and Mercurius estimated in his analysis that even if the political will was there in the United States, it would take 10 years to rebuild and uh, reprioritize U.S. manufacturing just to be able to start putting Ukraine on an equal footing with Russian um, guns that are coming, guns and ammo. 10 years. So it's a it's a total pipe dream. Yeah, and the, that that article there was an article that talks about the the return of industrialized war that was making that point between right U.S. doesn't have manufacturing capacity in terms of armaments and like Russia for example does like a lot and one of the things that they they quoted was something like uh, America can produce uh, sixty Tomahawk cruise missiles per year and I nearly fell off my chair because you remember like Iraq War shock and awe they launched five hundred cruise missiles. On that night at Baghdad, right? 500 of them. So if it took that, no, you know, back then maybe they were manufacturing more. Uh, that was in like whatever, 1991, whatever it was. Um, we're obviously uh, over 30 years later here. So uh, maybe back then they were, but if you think about it, you know, today you're going, well, you know, Russia Russia has the capacity, and we know they do because they fired estimated between one thousand and two thousand missiles uh, in Ukraine, and they've obviously got a lot more because they ain't worried about NATO or the U.S. or anybody else. So, right, how would they actually? Well, yeah, not how would they win a war against anyone? How I mean, how would they lose? <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, th Pretty scary. Th this begs all kinds of questions. Like, um, on the face of it, if you put the most paranoid <clears throat> conspiracy theory in the West into this equation, namely that Russia won't stop at Ukraine, it'll go on to other places, and it'll <clears throat> roll its tanks into Western Europe, well, actually it could if it wanted to because Germany this is why Germany and France are being pushed by the United States and Britain to send whatever you have eastwards make a deal with Poland who will then make a deal with um, Ukraine or with Slovakia and they're all in the process of trying to barter with each other, with each other. they're saying right, well we'll send these tanks but only if you can give us some of your new German stuff and the Germans are saying uh, nine we, we do not have any but we're waiting for shipping from America like yeah Holy shit! How do they get into this situation? Like, I think they were just so. It's, it's, it's partly like it must be partly that they they were blindsided by their their own ideology and hubris. That must be a large part of it. I do wonder though. Is there something else behind that? There must be smart people who really run the show, in the West anyway, who would have seen and observed, obviously, Russia's build-up of its military and its manufacturing base and had one eye on that when formulating Western or, indeed, global decisions of global import. So, that I don't know. 
I, I keep an open mind about that. On the one hand, it looks like the U.S. Um, is is caught with his pants down in every possible way here. On the other hand, I, I keep an open mind that that may be sort of part of the plan, so to speak. So that brings me into something into you know broader geopolitics than that than just U.S. proxy war versus Russia and Ukraine. Um, let's play this video. I'm not sure when this is from, but it's not really important because it's about a general ongoing current trend. This is the guy people are probably familiar with at this point. Um, a spooky-looking Israeli called Noah Harari, advisor to Klaus Schwab. I don't know what extent he's an advisor to Klaus Schwab, but lots of people have been affiliated with Klaus Schwab, but I think he is indeed um, writing, working with the World Economic Forum, the Davos set. He's most he's most famous actually on the New York Times bestseller for his book about, you know, I can't remember what it's called, Homo sapiens. The, the trend, the evolution, he's a hardcore Darwin, Darwinist, so he's the evolutionary trend of where humanity's going, kind of like a futurist, that kind of thing. So here he is um, discussing what to do with, well, let's, let's hear him say it. The biggest question, in, maybe in economics and politics of the coming decades, will be what to do with all these useless people. The problem is more uh, boredom and how, what to do with them and how will they find some sense of meaning in life when they are basically meaningless, worthless. My best guess at present is a combination of drugs and computer games as a solution for more. It's already happening. Uh, in, 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 in under different titles, different headings, you see more and more people spending more and more time or uh, uh, solving their inner problems with uh, uh, drugs and computer games, both legal drugs and illegal drugs. You look at Japan today, and Japan is maybe 20 years ahead of the world in, in everything. And you see all these new social phenomenon of, of people having relationships with virtual, uh, virtual spouses. And you have people who never leave the house and, and just live through computers. I think once you're superfluous, you don't have power. Uh, again, we're used to the age of the masses of the 19th and 20th century, where you, all, where you, where you saw all these successful uh, massive uprisings, revolutions, revolts. So we, we got, we are used to thinking about the masses as powerful. But this is basically a 19th century, a 20th century phenomenon. I don't think that the masses, even if they, they somehow organize themselves, uh, stand much of a chance. We are not in, in, in Russia of 1917 or in, uh, uh, in 19th century Europe. What we're talking about now is like a second industrial revolution, but the product this time will not be textiles or machines or vehicles or even weapons. The product this time will be humans themselves. We are basically learning to produce bodies and minds. Bodies and minds are going to be, I think, the two main products of the next wave of all these uh, uh, changes. That is, 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 is optional. Again, and if you think about it from the viewpoint of the poor, it looks terrible because throughout history, death was the great equalizer. 
the big consolation of the poor throughout history was that, okay, these rich people, they have it good, but they're going to die just like me. But think about the world, say, in 50 years, 100 years, where the poor people continue to die, but the rich people, in addition to all the other things they get, they also get exemption from death. Exemption from death. Right. He's pretty convinced that maybe not in his lifetime, but soon enough, they're going to escape death. The elites. So, like, that's what they believe. That they believe you're superfluous, you're useless. Um, obviously, that's shocking and, um, you know, insane on the face of it. But is there any, is there any objective basis to what he's... That's hard to say. I mean, uh, they there is this thing. I mean, in addition to there being like you know confusion over is this AI intelligent or not, there is like there's you know Elon Musk and his you know you're going to have the implant in your brain and then you're going to you know we'll upload our consciousness and things many things that seem to be um, far out far out kind of science fiction are becoming like like. Like I mentioned, I made that video on, on AI, the Lambda thing. And before I did that, I watched a whole bunch of videos and read some stuff to see, like, okay, well, you know, before I say anything here, like, am I missing something? Like, mm -hmm. what is the current state of AI? Mm -hmm. And I actually showed a couple of videos to my wife, and she was like, oh, my God, I didn't know they were that good. And, like, yeah, they, they really are. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, it's getting to the point where people are, like, shocked, like, that's a computer. That's like, it's like real time conversation with, yeah. you know, and of course robotics is getting insanely good. Uh, artificial skin that sweats, all this stuff, like artificial limbs that have like multi, multi-layer sensors on like the tip of the finger, for example, so that you can sense heat and cold and pressure and even sensation. And it transmits it up the nerves to the, the, the person's actual, like, you know, biological arm that's left. Mm -hmm. Um, so you put all this stuff together and you go like, yeah, 50 years from now, like, we may actually have some uh, some pretty crazy technologies, but... Um, so when he's talking about bodies, he's talking about better, an improvement of Homo sapiens. As he sees it, we're going to augment, like Schwab, people will be better than what they are now. It's, it's bizarre because it's, it reminds me of the whole Ubermensch, the Superman... Um, ideas that were coming into vogue in the early 20th century. Of course, that became notorious because of the, the Nazis' embrace of it, you know, the master race, blah, blah, blah. But now we have people who still think like that, but they are actually actively encouraging the application of technology on people to the point where he doesn't feel this man doesn't feel a fool suggesting that some will escape death they will maybe that's the whole point of where they're going with this they want to break the loop of of the cycle of life and death and that they would live forever um on the issue of computer games um let's let's play this next who who best to um talk about a virtual reality for the masses than Mark Zuckerberg. This is him this week, I think, on that guy who keeps getting financial forecasts wrong show. <laughs> Our North Star is that 
You know, by the end of the decade, we hope to basically get to around a billion people in the metaverse doing hundreds of, of dollars of commerce each, um, buying, you know, digital goods, digital content, different things to express themselves. So whether that's clothing for their avatar or different digital goods for their virtual home or, or things to decorate their virtual conference room, um, utilities to be able to be more productive in, in, in virtual and augmented reality and across the metaverse overall. So I think that there's going to be a massive economy around this. Um, it's going to create a lot of opportunity for creators. That's why you, know, you hear me talking about the creator economy so much. I'm just really excited about a world where you're going to have millions of more people who can do creative work that, that just makes them happy as their job um, instead of some of the things that, that, they're, that they might be doing today because they just they feel like they need to in order to make money. Um, I think that's going to be a massive opportunity, but, uh, but certainly I think it's a huge business opportunity for us too for the reasons that you say. Hard to imagine how much energy is harmless in there. The imagination is not necessary. The scale is readily quantifiable. I, th I think that Star Trek clip is a dig at him looking like data. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Try to wrap your head around that. The Zuck obviously has a personal vested business interest in a billion people being, you know, connected to his metaverse. But did you hear what he said about giving people a job yeah. and meaning and something to do? I think he, put yourself in his space for a second. If you, Risk it. Just chance it. I think he thinks he's going to be filling in. It, there's a functional requirement. There's a need that he's going to be providing a needed service because without it, people would be living meaningless lives or, or nothing to do. So so th this, is what I, this is why I asked you, is there an objective trend going on here? You remember back in the, the running for the 2020 election, um, the Democratic primaries, there was that uh, Chinese or Japanese-American guy, I forget his name, and he introduced the mass audience to something called, um, what's the term for it? When you give people a salary, no matter what they do or what they are, a universal basic income. And that was the platform he was running on. We, we need to start doing this. Uh, Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang, that's yeah. it, yeah. And it enabled, because that was his his main election idea enabled him to talk about why it was necessary, he thought. And it was because of the high number of jobs that are being lost to automation, to AI, in, in part. So what is AI? AI isn't, you know, there's AI in people's heads, like this Lambda thing where the thing might become sentient. That's still, that's still far away, right? We haven't got there. Well, no one, no one really knows. No one knows. Okay. But functionally, most of the applications they hear about is that it's super fast processing of data, which enables things to speed up, which enables a lot of, which enables computers in some cases to be more accurate than people at calculating, at spotting problems with, well, all kinds of things. Okay, hold this, hold all of this in your head for a second. I want to show you a book that uh, me and Scotty have both read. Um, there it is there. Yeah, it's good. AI Superpowers, China, Silicon Valley, and the New World Order by Kai-Fu Lee. Kai-Fu Lee is, I think, Chinese or from Singapore, Chinese in Singapore. Anyway, he's a big, he's a, he was a, a teacher, I think. But he was also an entrepreneur. I think he's worked, he has a kind of 
this distinction of having worked both in Silicon Valley and in China's growing tech sector. Though he wrote this book, um, AI superpowers obviously is talking about superpowers, China and um, the West, America. And the kind of, it's partly about the race to AI, which is something that Putin has also talked about. Putin said in a speech a few years ago that he who controls AI or who masters it will have enormous influence on the future of the world. So Putin's also thinking about this subject, okay? Um, the, but the book isn't so much U.S. versus China in a war for any of this stuff. Rather, it's a comparison of where both countries' sectors are at with this stuff and the, 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 the implications it's going to have for a whole host of jobs that people do whether it's farming, manufacturing, services, uh, shipping. Um, you can see they're, they're still not there yet. It's not actually going to be piloted in any serious way soon, but they do want automated shipping. There is some of that going on. They want with actual you know, boat ships on the seas, uh, automated trucks, automated cars. You can see where this is going. Anyway, the point is, he comes to this guy, from a Chinese perspective, comes to the same basic conclusion as Harari and others in the West are hinting at, that a lot of people are going to have no work. And therefore, what are we going to do about that? This is, this is a totally different tack, though, at the end. He's not like Harari saying, what are we going to do with these useless people? Let's give them computer games and drugs. It's a, at least the Chinese, this author anyway, is taking a lot more humane approach. He foresees, yeah, it's going to be a crisis, a crisis of meaning, of course, and simply what to do. Um, a lot more, there'll be a lot more roles for people in counseling, in working on new relationships. It will change the nature of you won't just be getting up in the morning on your own, going to a job, interacting a little bit with workers back home. That whole nature of being in your own, having your own bank account and your own disposable income is going to change. All things being equal, this is where trends are going. So whether you listen to Harari or uh, some thinkers in China, I think they're all convinced that this is going to change completely the basic nature of economy and work and what people do in it. The difference is Harari gives the game away from, from at least he gives away his mindset about it when he calls them useless people, superfluous people. Um, I think some years ago, this hasn't just sprung on us now, I think some years ago people in meetings like the Davos set, not just in the World Economic Forum, but also Bilderberg and elsewhere, made a kind of, not a decision, rather they came to realize they had already reached this point. That there's already enough technology and um, automation of processes from farming to industry to services and distribution that we no longer need people. And that this kind of realization or um, development 
is why things have been so crazy in the last few years. I think that this decision or realization is what informs COVID, the lockdowns, the what it actually was, which is a controlled demolition of the economy, the mass, effectively mass plundering of goods in the world by the West with monopoly money they know, as Putin said, but they know will no, <coughs> no longer have values shown. Um, so this isn't just a far-off future thing. I think it's basically already on the way. Um, and as crazy as Harari sounds, think about if you can kind of parse what he's saying or what um, Zuckerberg's saying. I think there's some objective basis for what the what the for the decisions they've made. I mean, why else would Zuckerberg make this transition to the metaverse? You know, from Facebook. It's not just a business idea. Yeah, well, it's, he thinks it's a functional service for humanity. He's yeah, still nuts, but <laughs> the, the thing the thing to remember about uh, tech companies and especially uh, Western tech companies, which I, you know, uh, you know, it will be interesting to know what say like the CEO of you know Yandex or something is is working towards, you know, and kind of for comparison. But um, the thing I wanted to say was uh, not so many years ago. It was uh, 5G and the Internet of Things. And you may remember, you know, 5G was coming, blah, blah, blah. And Internet of Things was every single gizmo that you have, including like, uh, you know, tissue that comes out of your Kleenex box and you wipe your nose. It, it'll all have little chips in it and it's all going to be connected and everything's going to be, basically everything's going to be spying on you, right? Mm. So uh, your Kleenex, when you take the last Kleenex out of the box, maybe the, the box will have a chip in it and it will sense that you need a new box of Kleenex. It will automatically go to Amazon and order one for you and it'll be delivered by a AI drone mm. like directly into your hand and isn't this cool you know and all of this was going to be made by putting sensors in absolutely everything and isn't this is going to be the amazing new future uh, unfortunately here we are several years later uh, 5G is here and that has not happened because uh, right there are massive shortages of components um, due to the COVID lockdown. So the thing that they did to lock us down, to get us used to being locked down, uh, had knock-on effects that they could have easily predicted, and maybe they did. Uh, but, right, there's some indication that they knew, yes, Russia would go into Ukraine, and, of course, this would cause the energy crisis, or more accurately, they would act like idiots to, to uh, cause an energy crisis instead of just saying, you know what, we need your oil, we'll buy oil, and everybody carries on, you know. So the first thing I would say is that uh, tech leaders are often kind of idiots. <laughs> They're, like they believe their own bullshit, right. you know. So I can easily see Zuckerberg going like, right, Facebook, uh, you know, we've been working with the NSA and we're managing news and everything people think. You know, we've got, but what's the next step? What's the next step? Okay, I just went to the, my Bilderberg conference or whatever, you know, right. and they're like, this is the future. And he's like, I will help you accomplish that, you know, and, and so then he says, it's all the metaverse. Um, then it's like there there was a, I can't, I, I don't even remember the title of the article. It was an article in Russian written by some uh, Russian economist guy, Sergei. 
Sergei Glazhev. Glazhev, yeah. Yeah, that's him. <clears throat> yeah. And it was in Russian, and it was, you know, you had to translate it into English, and he's talking about, uh, you know, the next, you know, industrial revolution and blah, 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 and that this is a phase that we're in right now. And uh, it was pretty clear that, uh, like, he's aware of all this stuff, but their ideas of what comes next is kind of the more humane version. What do you Whereas, say? Um, well, he kind of started off by talking about, like, you know, World War One and, you know, Britain and uh, that it was sort of like, um, I think it was the colonialist era. And then the colo colonialist era worked as well as it could for as long as it could. And it was all about, like, human slavery, basically. Mm -hmm. And then, well, that kind of got to its peak. And as it collapsed, uh, I think then the next it was industrial or something uh, where, you know, you're not going to have so many poor people, blah, blah, blah. You have the West now. Everybody's got stuff. It's great. You know, uh, Edward Bernays in marketing. You know, you don't right. buy a new car because your old car broke down. You buy a new car because it's a status symbol and all mm -hmm. this kind of stuff started. And now that's basically run its course in the U.S. As, and, and the West, kind of led by the USA anyway, um, it's reached its peak and it's all falling apart. And so, of course, he says, naturally, you know, Russia has this glorious role to play in, in the next stage. Um, there's not a lot of information. Well, as a Westerner, there's not a lot of information that I can find that tells me anything useful about, like, for example, the state of AI or the state of, you know, metaverse stuff and, and whatever in, in countries like Russia, for example. Um, also, Russia is not the only country. I mean, China, China is... Uh, in the West, is particularly in America, like we're always told that China is like a backwards country and they're poor and blah blah blah. But in, I'm pretty sure it was in that book you showed, where if it wasn't that one, it was another one where uh, basically China is a pedal to the metal and they are out innovating uh, even the USA uh, like six ways from Sunday because they work like super hard. Uh, like I think even even on like AI of all the papers published on AI in like recent years, like the vast majority, like 60 or 70% of them were from like Chinese universities and research centers. It was like yeah. super crazy. So I think these guys like this crazy Israeli guy and everything, they, they have this wonderful vision of how things are going to be, but it's kind of like the 5g thing where they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Internet of things it's going to be awesome. Here's how we're going to do it. And they're, they're trying to make it happen. But the reality is that, um, the West is actually a, a relatively small portion of the population of the earth. And you have these other countries and groups who are going, uh, no, we like things like traditional values and we value things like, Oh, you know, humanity. Uh, so yes, AI is important and yes, metaverse is important and, and all, and yes, we know we're changing, but, uh, no, it's not going to go that way because the current power, the West and people like Zuckerberg, they're the ones who are basically losing their control as their whole system, the the system in which they prospered, let's say, is collapsing around them. Um, so I'm kind of less inclined to listen to people like him and crazy Israeli guy uh, and more inclined to listen to this Sergei Glazyev dude because uh, especially like, you know, we're just talking about military production and blah, 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 and bricks. And it's like... Um, yeah, it's kind of like a, a, a new world order is being established in front of our eyes in slow motion, uh, economically, socially, politically. And, you know, what will all that mean? I don't know. 
from a technology point of view, like God only knows. I mean, I do think that at some point we're going to see kind of like AI things. There probably will be some kind of metaverse thing. There will be some killer application, just like a smartphone. Um, but how will it all play out? Uh, I'm not convinced that it will be. I think it's going to be interesting because mm. <clears throat> there's a lot of political, economical, you know, other things and a lot of like rising powers in the world that are going, uh-uh, we're not doing it that way. You know, in all you other countries, you're going to choose, are you with them or are you with us? Are you with the Western, the old Western model or our new one? And what is that all going to bring? Um, I don't know, but yeah, so that's kind yeah. of my take on it. Yeah. Good. Good take. Because it reminds me that I'm probably trying to understand where the Western elite or consortium are seeing things, but through their seriously distorted lens. Yeah. Because I have nothing else to go with. I mean, the Glaziev article, I know what you're referring to. I should go back and try and read it as well. Um, it's actually kind of hard to read because it's it's a, it, it's was a, a, tra- it, was a it was a Yandex translation that right. one of our viewers sent and I, I read it and it's it's hard to you know, you don't get a lot of the nuances of what he was trying to say. So, I mean, I was reading an auto automatic translation of something in Russian. And well, so AI will get bit, better, uh, and soon you'll have a perfect translation. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so. Yeah. That's, this is the thing, isn't it? That Here we are, we're Westerners in the West, watching it collapse. We know it's going somewhere bad. We're trying to understand where it's going, um, or at least where... I'm trying to understand where our dear leaders think it's going. Yeah. Therefore, why they take the destructive actions they take, which only only speed up the bad place it's going. Yeah. I'm aware of that. And then I'm trying to... I don't know. The, the danger here is do, do we have false hope in the idea that the other 7 billion who are not in the West's golden billion are going to be able to sustain anything at all. Never mind keep the whole world basically stable through this whole chaotic period. Because we don't, we don't know the extent to which... Well, Joe was kind of sure when we talked about MAD and the potential for out-and-out conflict between major powers. I... St- I agree with them basically, but I still hold out that we don't we don't know the extent of their madness, how far they would go to push Russia. Look at this comparison we made of conventional warfare means and the lack of industrial base. There are surely some people in the US who realize this. I mean, beyond what the bullshit they tell themselves, they surely realize this, just as this British think tank very coldly realized it, the RUSI. Um in their article, they said this: we would have to retool everything, and it would take ten years. Yeah, um, I don't see any plans of what to do that. So, what are they thinking? You see, um, are they thinking it's all right? We're going to kick the ladder out from under us, and none of the other seven billion are going to be able to to climb up and over us, as they see it, to take our place, to supplant us. You know. It, it all depends on the extent to which they're willing to wreck everything yeah. to maintain the status quo, you know? 
I don't know, but I th- I think you always have to factor in the idea that like the people who are running the show at the minute are like they believe their own bullshit. Yeah, because like they clearly do, and they're... that that influences like what they're going to do, and they're they're going to you know it, it's like you go okay, Russia goes into Ukraine, right? Why on earth would the U.S. give away all its weapons when it knows that it can't manufacture any more in time and they they wouldn't be able to defend themselves against a real war like, like say, Russia directly against the USA, right? That just doesn't make any sense. Well, it does if it's all about the information economy and it's all about manufacturing more weapons – so, which you, you're never going to use them because you're just going to get everybody and you're going to poke everybody in Europe and you're going to – because they actually believe their own nonsense and they don't believe – You know, they may even have intelligence showing that Russia has 50,000 you know, cruise missiles stocked up or mm-hmm. more even. And they'll go like, yeah, but that doesn't matter because they also talk about like we have the, the, the edge in information warfare. and Even Russia has admitted that the America has the edge in information warfare. And they actually believe that information warfare – is more powerful because if you control the minds of the people in every country, then it doesn't matter if you have firepower. I mean, I actually read one of these. They've actually said that point blank. And you're going, right, but if if a cruise missile starts flying over and it's about to fall into your head, your your information war doesn't do any good. And they argue, no, 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 we'll never get to that point because – and you just run around in circles. Yeah. So it's like – Someone in the chat room just posted – Alistair posts – comment saying automation isn't much use with ain't much use with no energy yeah <laughs> so yeah i think that they get caught up in their own bullshit and forget the fundamentals the the material physical things that still tie us all to you know uh very much earthly concerns but their headspace is like information you know here we are uh, harari talking about escaping death a hundred years from now and uh, up, the whole thing of uploading consciousness to computers, and I mean, yeah, I think they just they've broken from reality in some way, and it shows by the kind of crazy backtracking they've had to do over the, the sanctions against Russia. You know, this week, another snippet that just puts the whole sanctions against Russia completely like in, into crazy making territory, trying to make sense of it. The European Union has imported more oil from Russia in the last few months than like it does in a year usually. This is despite saying, and they're still committed to it, they're still talking about it, that they've they've slapped a 90% embargo on Russian oil products into Europe. The caveat in that, oh, we've done away with Russian oil is, the small print says, by the end of next year. So this is what we intend to do Eventually, but in practice right now, what we're doing by our actions is we're freaking out and we're hoarding as much of it as possible. Give us all your oil. So we have, you know, we make it through until we can, what, correct, change, make the transition to the green economy by the end of next year. You know, again, that, that's not going to happen. Anyway, um, we're running kind of late here, but uh, I did say I would do an update on the situation in Ukraine. So let's run through it quickly. The basic thing that happened last week is that's just, I think it, I think it's a breakthrough. I mean, <laughs> the 
the hilarious thing is the Western media reporting of last week was all the headlines agreed that the mass um, retreat of Ukrainian forces from Severodonetsk and Lysychansk in Donbass is a strategic retreat. Then they're falling back to better ground, you know. Uh, from there, they'll be able to take on the Russians, no problem. It's it's amazing how it happens, actually. One thing leads to another. There have been retreats since the beginning of this, but this each one gets bigger and bigger. Um, it's it's horrible for them because, you know, the forces, the Ukrainian forces that were there wanted to fall back before now, but they left it to the last minute. And officially, they had no terms of surrender with the Russians, so the Russians fired at most of the fleeing convoys um, when they left Severodonetsk. <clears throat> On one day last week, the Russian Ministry of Defense reported, I don't know if this is true, but they said it, so up to 500 servicemen of the 59th Mechanized Brigade of the Armed Forces of Ukraine were killed with high-precision weapons of Russian forces in the shops, I think they mean the workshops, of the Nikolaev shipbuilding plant. Nikolaev is not in the Donbass. That's over towards Odessa on the south coast, almost on the coast of Ukraine. 500 people working on doing repairs for the bulk of the Ukrainian forces in the east. Um, I don't know how they came up with that figure. Ukraine, obviously, there's no official position from Kiev on how many people died in those airstrikes, but that's just one of the airstrikes. There have been a lot of airstrikes across Ukraine this week. That's the, is it more than last week? I'm not sure, but in general, they are increasing week on week, um, the number of Russian strikes, probably because of the amount of Western equipment that's coming in. But also, it seems that overall, the strategy of the Russians has been to begin small and hope that encourages a, the change of political will in Kiev to negotiate, to, you know, just sue for peace at whatever cost, surrender, basically. But it doesn't happen, and each, as the weeks and months go by, Russia increases, and it shows what it can do. Uh, and all those predictions from the beginning of this war, that Ukraine was going to win, Yeah. Everyone acknowledged now <clears throat> its retreat. But the best possible gloss that Western reports can put on it is that their strategic retreats, you see, they were always intended. They weren't. The forces fled positions last week at the last minute. And because they, they did so under no official terms of surrender, they were basically open targets for the Russians to fire at. So, yeah, there was 500 killed in one incident, apparently, over in Nikolaev, way behind the enemy lines. Um, numbers dead in on the Eastern Front itself. It's I'm not sure, but there's one report where it's like in the thousands last week, up and down the front. But just that's just fighting, not even not including Kharkiv. That's just fighting in around Donetsk City, and this uh, sort of cauldron or pocket in Severodonetsk and Lysychansk. It could be as much as 8,000. That's some killed, some captured. That's a huge chunk in one week. Um, I think the floodgate's going to open soon. The Russians have absorbed and absorbed lots of the Ukrainian armed forces from other positions. That's part of why they were teasing them, I think, 
with going slow and with going into towards Kiev at the beginning of it. Scott Ritter's definitely called it right. He said that in hindsight, there was a, a feint. It was a feint maneuver to draw Ukrainian forces away. At this point, <clears throat> the Russians have strategically pulled them, the bulk of them into like a point where they have to surrender or they're going to be killed. And they have hardly any reserves to, to back up. They're drafting women at this point. They're drafting convicts. Um, yeah, that, that was a good combination. Let's draft women and convicts and put them into battle together. Who yeah. came up with that idea? Probably Cocaine Head in Kiev. <laughs> um, dozens of videos this week of specific battalions or units surrendering, uh, or not so much surrendering. No, that surrenders when you submit to the your opponent, but uh, making videos, publishing them, uh, telling Kiev to take a hike. They're done. They don't want to fight anymore. Um, so Lugansk is fully... It's fully under Russian and local militia control at this point. Donetsk is still far away. Donetsk, the city, is still being hit by um, French, British, American guns acquired by the Ukrainian army. Of course, they're targeting city. They're not targeting the Russians. Um, there was a development today. There was a massive barrage of airstrikes uh, against Kiev. I can't remember the last time Kiev itself was hit. It's been a while, I think, because um, there's all kinds of... Yeah. Take your pick. Um, Kiev's had it pretty good since the since the, Wash, the Russians withdrew from the city. They weren't beaten back to the point where Take a look at this article from the Daily Mail. Uh, Ukrainians are enjoying the summer in Kiev. This, the mail headline, Kiev basks in freedom. Ukrainians flock to beaches and soak up the sun on the banks of the Dnieper in scenes that were unimaginable weeks ago when Russia launched assault on the city. Huh? Just scroll down. It's, um, it's actually from earlier in June, but you know, over the last two weeks, there've been videos and photos. Indeed, life is good in Kiev. Oh, isn't that nice? Yay, freedom! I'm not sure what to make of this. It's either kind of like, you know, Berlin before the fall with the Russian army, like the Red Army, outside the city and people just went on an orgy. Or more like, it's more like maybe, oh, well, Donbass, it's a different country. You know, I think that's probably the, yeah, the, the dominant attitude. Oh, yeah, you see in the background there, something yeah. is, some. I don't know if that's an airstrike. So this article is June 13th. I don't know if that's an airstrike or some of the reasons something is burning hard over the city. Whatever, we'll just carry on. So there's a kind of, it's a bit of both maybe. It's kind of like fall of Berlin, um, nihilism coupled with a blatant lack of any kind of Ukrainian social national cohesion. Uh, the, those images were from a week prior on June 5th. Okay. 
Um, but cafes and restaurants are open again. Now, the British media was spinning this as, well, you see, Kiev feels safe now because the city rallied and kicked the Russians out. Except that never happened. The Russians withdrew because the whole thing about going to Kiev was a feint, as I said earlier. So, yeah, there's one other possible dynamic going on here. I think it, they feel relaxed enough in Kiev to party, enjoy the summer holidays, because they know behind the whatever is said, they know from the actions of what has taken place so far that Russian forces are not savage. No bomb is about to land on the beach by accident. It speaks to how careful Russian forces have been to avoid hitting civilian targets. They feel safe when they're out. They're not in their homes in their basement. They are in some other places. And there it's never clear whether the, the bombs flying overhead are coming from the Russians or the Ukrainian forces. But in Kiev, they're not scared. And they're not scared speaks volumes. It, their actions are speaking for them. They may say all kinds of things about screw those Russians for invading our countries. Well, I'm sure they all share, a lot of them share that sentiment in Kiev. What they don't share is the Western media portrayal of the Russians as particularly savage because they're, quote, targeting civilians. No, they're not. And you can see that by their actions. They know they can go outside because it's safe. And the crazy thing is the propaganda in the meantime, back in the rest of the West, has like people who are poorer than many of those we saw in Kiev who are organizing fundraisers and donation drives to send to the poor people of Ukraine, most of which ends up in western Ukraine and Kiev. It doesn't end up in the, in the east and the south where people are poor and where they could use help. It ends up going to Kiev. It's nuts. Like, even just locally here, there's been, I've seen several mm. things, you know, where people, people who are relatively poor here are doing their bit, you know, to send to the poor people of Ukraine. It's just, it's such a mind, mind job. Um, yeah, they're, they're sending money to the poor Ukrainians. Meanwhile, you know, gas has doubled in price, you know, fuel for cars, and uh, elect, the elect, price of electricity here will probably go up uh, in January of next year. Um, price of, like, heating oil, price of gas, like, and there'll be shortages, and people are struggling. Food prices have gone up, and so they're just getting people to funnel their money and give it all away so that, yeah, great. I don't know if you can see this, Scott. I can't see it on my... This is a New York Times piece. You remember last week we... Um, I wondered about the extent of um, an official U.S. military presence in Ukraine. Um based on the number of incidents where American American citizens or just about ex-military people were actually caught, captured by Russians, or injured. Um, there's, but it's only anecdotal. Officially, there's no U.S. presence in Ukraine, right, on the ground, because the U.S. <clears throat> Biden is supposed to have withdrawn the advisors that were there when war broke out. Except this week... New York Times, Commando Network coordinates flow of weapons in Ukraine. 
Subheadline, a secretive operation involving U.S. special forces hints at the scale of the effort to assist Ukraine's still outgunned military. If you scroll down, um, they basically, they don't give numbers, and it's probably small for sure. But uh, I was right and Joe was wrong. <laughs> I get to say that. There is an official U.S. military presence on the ground in Ukraine. Um some of it's in Ukraine, some of it's in Poland, some of it's in Germany. Okay, they're not all <clears throat> in Ukraine. What they're also, this article says that the CIA um, personnel have continued to operate in the country, especially in Kiev. Um, directing, if you see there in the second paragraph, directing much of the vast amounts of intelligence the United States is sharing with Ukrainian forces. You can be sure that that's going the other way as well. There was some bullshit article, I think, in the New York Times as well, like the beginning of this month, where Oh, the U.S. has an intelligence gap on what's happening in Ukraine. Yeah, Kiev doesn't tell us everything. You know, Biden White House doesn't really know what's going on. Well, that may be the case. But what the article, what that information drive at the beginning of the month was trying to imply was that the U.S., no one in the U.S. had a clear idea of where the weapons were going, of what Kiev was going to do next. They were trying to make it sound. Indeed, that's true. Biden White House doesn't have any say and how to direct what's going on in the ground in Ukraine. But that was bullshit, which is now exposed by this. There is CIA presence, and you can bet your bottom dollar that when it says there that vast amounts of tel intelligence coming from the U.S. to Ukraine is also going the other way, from Ukraine back to the U.S. Uh, it also describes how a few dozen, we'll see if that number grows in the coming weeks and months, a few dozen commandos from other countries NATO countries, Britain, France, Canada, also have been working inside Ukraine. The United States withdrew that 150 military instructors before the war began. But commandos from these allies either remained or have gone in and out of the country since then. So 150 left. How many stayed and then went in? I I, I think it's it's probably a lot higher. Than, I I think this could come up to thousands. Mostly in Kiev, though. The article's probably correct. They're not on the front line. It's interesting to note, though, that the two Americans who were captured, one of them for sure said he had just arrived there on the Eastern Front, and that he was, he told RT when he was captured that he was sent there to provide a cover for a retreat. So he just arrived. Um, I wonder. I wonder how many are really there. Um, because you can be sure that this war is a proxy war in the same way, the similar way that the Saudi proxy war against Yemen is. The Saudis have almost no operational say in what goes on there. Read about what's going on there. The command centers that initiate everything, airstrikes. It's not just that the plane is French and the bombs are British and the fuel's provided by Americans or something. Everything, when the plane will take off, where will bomb next in Yemen, is all coming from a command center that's staffed by NATO people. That's in mainstream descriptions of how the Saudi war or the Gulf coalition of the Gulf state willing against Yemen is taking place. It is a proxy. It is literally a glove with a totally different hand in it. So I suspect we're going to see as weeks and months go on that it's 
similar level of um of a facade in Ukraine as well. Does. Um that's that's all that's probably all that I have time for 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 Ukraine. It's it's uh well, on a final note, the, the EU has given Ukraine candidate status to join the European Union. It's such a this such a mockery. It's, such, it's just beyond it's it's beyond tokenism. It's like they did that just for the press release. It's, it's, it isn't even going to be a political bargaining chip, you know, that'll be involved in any way in the settlement of what happens in Ukraine. They also gave it to Georgia and Moldova. I mean. All three countries have a, a disputed part that wants to secede. Transnistria and Moldova sees itself as Russian. Uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia in Georgia, Russian. And obviously Ukraine, Donbass. <laughs> yeah, they'll be in the EU. In, in Valhalla. In, in the after... In, in the metaverse. Ukraine can join... The European they'll, Union in the metaverse. They'll be in. The, they'll be in the the EMU, the European Metaverse Union. <laughs> oh look, I see someone in there. There's someone in the comments there. Who's that? He says, "Be Jesus." Is that not? That's not how I think it is. is Why well, it says it is. <laughs> Joe Quinn. I wonder if Joe has any comments. Did uh, any questions or comments? Pass your... Uh, not that I noticed, no. No? But let's see. Let's see what, what Joe has to say. <laughs> He's been very quiet the whole time. <laughs> Joe. He must be... He must have had a lot of Guinness because look at the grin on his face. I mean, he's like... And he's still sleeping. <laughs> We've been going for two hours and 24 minutes, and he's been sleeping the whole time. And actually, our, our newsreel with Joe and Neil sign is also sleeping for some reason, so it'll be awake again next week. I, I don't think he can see it. He can hear us, though. <laughs> Do you know what it is, Joe? Can you guess? <laughs> yeah, thanks for that contribution there, the Joe. He's okay. so happy. Um, let's sign off there then for this week's show. There's much other madness, of course, that took place. There always is. It's uh, not looking good for social cohesion in the United States. It might be another long summer. I don't know if it'll get as bad as it did. In, was it 2020? No, 2020. Yeah, 2020. The BLM riots. That was insane. I don't think it'll get that bad, but still, it's one more tinderbox. I think that one had extra fuel because Trump was still in office. Yeah. Their man is in office at this point, so maybe not. We'll keep an eye on it, though. We'll okay. see. Thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks for listening, if you were listening in. Um, we'll sign off from here. Thanks for Scott for... Keeping the show going. No thanks to Joe, who just soundly snored through the whole thing. And he's still grinning. Yeah, he thinks it's, it's hilarious, isn't it? It's very he's like, funny. 
You guys are horrible. That show was funny. Anyway. <laughs> okay, guys. We'll say goodbye. Till next week. All right. See you next week. Take it easy. Over and out. Can't stop the signal now. Mm-hmm.